0: close this session, we'll look at uh, just citing John chapter 10, how he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. In our first session, we talked about uh, the resurrection. And uh, the second section uh, session, we're going to talk about a compelling hope and the issue of the meaning of life. So the, the first session was more about historical evidences for the resurrection. In this case, uh, we'll be talking about kind of uh, the issue of Axiology, which is the question of values, that how do we know that life has value? How do we know that it has significance, for example? So kind of looking at it a little bit more philosophically. Uh, but there is a book in the Bible that actually focuses upon this question in many ways. That's the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And so we'll be looking at some text from that uh, text as well. So to kind of review where we are. We looked at a living hope, the resurrection of Christ. Now we're at a compelling hope and the question of the meaning of life. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 in the context is talking about Jews and Gentiles getting together in the new body, the new man, which is the church. And how those who were Gentiles at that time, prior to their faith in Christ, were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, in context, it's talking about Gentiles in particular, who prior to the coming of Christ and then faith in him and being united with him into a new body, which is the church, uh, that they were without hope and without God in the world. But in one sense, this is true of all unbelievers. Without God and therefore without hope in the world. Objectively they are without hope in the world Um, even we ourselves prior to coming to faith in Christ without God and having no hope in the world. And that brings up the question of The meaning of life and the significance of life and purpose to life and the value of life. And the the word value is used in various ways when it comes to kind of these types of discussions. Uh, For example, uh, first of all, considering the idea of axiology. I already kind of threw out that term earlier in this session. But that's just a a term that refers in philosophy to the study of values. So in philosophy, there are actually two major branches of axiology, among others. So ethics is the study of moral value, right and wrong. Aesthetics is the study of beauty value. So issues, for example, art are discussed under aesthetics, and issues of uh, good right action decision making that would be discussed under ethics. But in general, it refers to the idea of values. And we think of something having extrinsic value, that is, having value outside of itself. For example, instrumental value, it's good for another purpose. Let's say, for example, that we have a um, kind of a a blade of steel that's highly sharpened. Why is it valuable? It's valuable because it can cut something else. It's, It's an instrument, and it's used for the sake of cutting like a knife. And that's the purpose. That's the significance of this tool as a knife. But we have other things that have sentimental value. That is, they are good because of emotional or similar attachment. Uh, Let's say that uh, you have a grandmother uh, who has passed away, but you remember having fond memories of visiting her house and uh, warm cookies that she would serve and just the smell of that in the kitchen when you go there for the holidays. And she always wore wore the same apron. And so that in the estate that was gifted to you. And when you look at that apron, you remember your grandmother and all those memories Now, if you were to sell that apron on the open market, it probably wouldn't fetch a lot of money. It's it's not worth a lot of instrumental value for other people to buy it. But to you personally, it's worth a lot because of sentimental value. But that's tied outside of the apron to how you are responding to the apron with emotional or similar attachment. We also think of the concept of intrinsic value that is, in and of itself, this has value. One fascinating thing about um, non-Christian worldviews, especially in our contemporary American context, is that it seems often they are running off of the fumes of the background historically of the Judeo-Christian ethic. For example, when we are told that we should treat everyone equally uh, because everyone has worth. And the background to that conversation in our context was a Judeo-Christian ethic of everyone being made in the image of God. But without that background, um, now we're just kind of told the the commandment, as it were, without the reasoning that's behind it that makes everyone actually equal uh, in in the sight of equality in that sense. So there was a Christian philosopher teaching out in Los Angeles, and I forget how old his daughter was. I think she was in sixth grade, but uh, she had come home from school, and she's talking about how her teacher had said, We need to treat everyone equally. And so he was trying to press her a little bit to kind of get her uh, kind of forming in her apologetic endeavors. And he's like, "So why, why do we have to treat everyone uh, with dignity? Why do we treat everyone with human dignity? And what is it that we all have in common?" She was, so she was trying to think of what's something that every human has in common. And she thought about, it, she thought about it. So finally, she said, "I know what it is. It's belly buttons. We all have <laughs> belly buttons." Well, her dad, you know, being the critical thinker that he was, he was not stymied by this. And so he responded, what if I took a knife to your brother and cut out his belly button? Would we still have to treat him with human dignity? Because if that's what ties us together, well, now it's gone. And he was just kind of being silly about it. But it's a reminder that if all we are is a material object, uh, like a physical body alone, uh, we actually are not all equal in our physical abilities and in our strength, and in ability, disability, etc. So if all we are is a physical object that's come through time by physical processes acting on material objects, we really don't have an underlying reason of why we should treat everyone with human dignity. But if we have something beyond that, such as the sense of the imago dei, all that means is the image of God, in which we are all made, then we actually do have a foundation for that. So in that sense, value is intrinsic to humans. But I would add, in a Christian worldview, it's not because it is um, found within us as if given to us or simply happened to appear naturally. It actually is related to God still. That is, God is the one who gave value to every human being. So in a sense... It's intrinsic. We are worth something. We're valuable because we're valuable to God himself, but he is the value giver at the end of the day. So some probing questions that could be asked in this regard. I'll just kind of fire these off rapid fire uh, here. Am I just... Um, Am I just amusing or, I flipped amusing and or there, am I just amusing or entertaining myself to death? It's actually where a lot of people in America find themselves today. They're just kind of going through life and they're looking for the next kind of fun thing to do. And they don't really sense there's much meaning to life ultimately. And if there's not an afterlife, how do we spend our few years on earth? And is simply having fun, amusing ourselves or entertaining ourselves. What makes my life meaningful? That's a related question to this topic. How would I define success? So if I look back in my life and I feel like I had a successful life, what would that look like? And the way you answer that question will tend to reflect your axiology, your your framework of value, what you find to be important. What do I consider to be my greatest accomplishments is obviously a related question to that. What are my top priorities in life? What, what do I most focus upon or what would I most focus upon if I had boundless energy and time? What, if anything, would I be willing to die for? Not to die for fur, but to die for. <laughs> it's like a trapper statement there. I got to proofread these uh, PowerPoints before presenting them. What, if anything, would I be willing to die for is often something that would show us our value system as well. And the book of Ecclesiastes, interesting enough, actually deals with some of these questions. So the book of Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament or of the Hebrew scriptures. Ecclesiastes concerns a search for meaning and significance under the sun. That phrase is found quite a bit in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's introduced by the preacher, or Koheles. There in the Hebrew uh, language, and it says he's the son of David. And according to tradition, then this is from the hand uh, and tradition of Solomon. And he's searching for significance and meaning under the sun, though. So it's on an earthly level. We really don't get this divine perspective strongly until the end of the book, when it kind of wraps it all up and says, "I went down all these routes." And none of these really brought me, in the end, value and significance. So the book of Ecclesiastes, in the early chapters, he's talking about how he tried all kinds of pleasure-seeking. He sought to accumulate all the wisdom and the intellect of the world in all his great works. In fact, we could just drop in, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And um, he talks about trying to find it through laughter, through humor, and through mirth in verse 2 of chapter 2. And verse 3 he talks about giving himself to wine and trying that out to see if he could find um, amusement and entertainment, but yet significance through that. Verse 4, his great works, he built houses, he planted vineyards. Verse 5, gardens and orchards and trees and fruits and then pools of water in the next verse. There with the wood that brings forth trees. And then he ends up with a very large household like a wealthy person. Servants and maidens and servants born in my house. Possessions great and small. In verse 8, the wealth of silver and of gold and the treasure of kings. And verse 9 then summarizes. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. But at the end of the day, under the sun... What does all this mean to him? And he will end up saying that it is, in fact, vanity of vanities. It's all empty. From our perspective, he gathered all that the world had to offer. The preacher, the son of David, concludes that under the sun, all is vanity of vanities. It's all empty. It didn't really fill the void, the emptiness that he had inside. As uh, one historical theologian famously said, we all have a God-shaped a hole, vacuum in our souls that only God can fill. And um, he tried all these things, the the wealth and the mirth and uh, the influence and the power and the fame and all these facets of culture. But he found that in the end, it was empty and vain. But the book does conclude at the end that we should remember God in the days of our youth before we grow old. And so we get to chapter 12 at the end of the book, and it famously says in verse 1, Remember now, thy creator, in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And then it begins to discuss uh, all these picturesque language, which I think we could probably figure out much of the imagery. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, so in old age eyesight is affected. That's why I have these on here this morning, my reading glasses as I age, nor the clouds return after rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, many people think that's like the hands, and as we get older sometimes uh, they shake with various ailments that we have, they tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves people think that might be the back or the legs, as we get older, the grinders cease because they are few, that would be teeth, and the loss of teeth, and uh, of course in modern day we have dentures, etc and hope that and those that look out the windows be darkened, so the eyesight and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low, so our hearing begins to go, we can't hear very well. He shall rise up at the voice of the bird, so we don't sleep very well, etc. And so there's a very picturesque language of what it's like to age and become elderly inside that context. And he's like, I, I realize that at the end of the day, uh, the way I spent life was vanity of vanities in the period that I was seeking. Uh, to find significance under the sun, at least. And so he's going to recommend and to exhort his readers not to do that, but rather to remember now your creator in the days of your youth, while the evil days have not yet come and the years have not drawn nigh, in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. So in summary, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's under the sun. That's apart from God's perspective. Which brings us to the question of the meaning of life. There are some options that are on the table in our modern context. One is simply nihilism. There is no meaning to life. That word is used in various ways in different contexts. Here in this context, we're talking about axiology of significance, of meaning, of value. Um, It comes from the Latin. It simply means nothing, nothingness. So in this context, it means there is no values, nothing. Of ultimate value, no significance. And there are some individuals, even philosophers today in academic contexts, who would say, to be honest about it, I think that this world just kind of has developed through physical processes, acting upon material objects over long periods of time. There is no ultimate meaning, no ultimate purpose to this. And so in the end, there's actually nihilism. There's nothingness. We can try to fabricate our own meaning, but it's not of real value. It's simply of artificial value. Others would say, well, we need to create our own meaning to life or subjectivism. Subjectivism. Each of us, as a subject, as a thinking and willing subject, we get to create our own meaning to life. In the mid-20th century, for example, uh, existentialism, was a strong philosophical movement, especially in kind of French context with Jean-Paul Sartre and his philosophy. And this was one of his key ideas that captivated a lot of the young people at the time period, is that we don't really have an essence that we are given. There's nothing given of our essence. We actually have something that we're moving toward and we get to create ourselves, that we make who we are uh, through our own choices. And so that in that sense, we're really lord of our own lives of our own um, significance, and of our own meaning. Others would say, well, that, that seems rather individualistic to a problematic level. So perhaps we need to find meaning through humanism or humanitarianism. That is, life has meaning as it works toward human progress. So it seems like if it's just about me, like in subjectivism, and we will all pass away, that... Uh, Know, everything being true of death and taxes, as it were, that these are givens, and that we're uh, leading inexorably toward the grave, that therefore life cannot have meaning. Um, and if it's just about us creating the meaning, then that meaning dies away with us as we end life and we are put in the grave. So let's think beyond that. Let's try to help out other people. And maybe if we help out other people, including the next generation... <laughs> then they'll have meaning, and that meaning will live beyond us. And that's the statement of humanism. We'll see in a moment that doesn't fully answer the question, actually, because you're kind of kicking the can down the road on that one, and I'll explain that more fully in just a moment. Of course, the other major player on the table is theism, that life has meaning in God's overall purpose and plan, that God is the one who ultimately gives life meaning. That is, if there is value, there has to be a value There has to be someone who gives the value to the object, just like we value the knife, the sharpened piece of metal, because we use it for a specific purpose uh, that in the end it's not that we give our own selves value, uh, but God is the one who in fact gives us value and ultimately gives life its meaning. That would be the theistic approach. Well, um, Ecclesiastes says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, and whether it be good or whether it be evil, Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen through 14. And that language of the whole duty of man reminded me of another Old Testament passage, perhaps you as well, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee. That is, what's the whole duty of man? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And so these are very theocentric, you might say. By that, I mean that they are focused up outside of us upon God. God is the one who shows us the significance and the meaning to life. And of course, we're not trying to at all move outside of or beyond or next to uh, this morning's message about the gospel itself, that the gospel itself of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins and his resurrection, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, But these verses talk about how we live our lives and how we are finding significance and meaning in a God-focused approach to those, these two texts from the Old Testament. Well, what I would like to do is establish... The fact that without immortality, life has no ultimate value. In other words, if the 60 or 70 or 80 or could be much lower, 25, 15 or higher, 95, 100 years, whatever the amount of life that we spend on this earth, if that's all there is, then logically, life does not have ultimate value if all we have is this short stint of life that we have here now. Why is that? Well, first of all, it doesn't have significance and value because if I'm going to die in a few years, what difference does it make whether I ever lived or not? So you think through, um, if I die and that's it, I am a material object, material object decays, fades away, it has no afterlife, it has no memory of what happened before, no experience of what happens afterwards, then in the end, we simply decay and rot um, in the grave or through cremation, and that's the end. And it's going to be the same for everyone, no matter how we live life or what we believed in this lifetime. And according to science, the universe is on an irreversible course toward entropy. So remember how I earlier said, Humanism actually seems to come up with an answer, and it says, well, let's go beyond ourselves. Let's think of the human race, especially the next generation. So then we have significance that outlasts us. We're going to help out the next generation, and maybe they'll help out the next generation. And so the, the meaning goes beyond our lifetime. But the problem is, in their own worldview, which is a closed worldview, there is no God, outside of the world, outside of the material universe, eventually, uh, millions and millions of years from now, the sun would die of heat death, Uh, will be a complete lack of energy, and so human life as we know it will cease to exist upon this planet. And although we're trying to get the next generation to have meaning, and they'll give the next generation, eventually the entire human race will pass away without any memory, of the past, if you have this materialistic worldview that we simply die and rot away and that's it. That's why I said it's simply kicking the can down the road to move from a subjectivist approach to a humanist or humanitarian approach, because in the end, you end up at the same place. That is, that there are no living beings with memories of the past that actually would recall and relate the significance and meaning that had been passed down to them. But also without immortality life has no ultimate value in the sense of purpose and meaning. If my life is entirely and merely the result of physical processes acting on material entities where does purpose come from? That is if there is no personal being who as it were programmed the cosmos and put it together with intent and with design, and things have simply happen the way they have because of physical processes, we end up with what in philosophy is called the is-ought conundrum. That is really what we're discussing in the material world is the way things are. This is what is. But it would be a logical um, difficulty to jump from what is to what ought to be. Uh, If this helps a little bit, you're jumping from what's descriptive, that is describing how things are, and trying to make it prescriptive. That's the way things should be, but that actually is a logical fallacy, to jump from the is to the ought from description to prescription, but really if there's no God and there's no personal intelligent being who's created the world and designed it and is sovereign, then we are forced to jump from the is and to the ought, which would be a logical fallacy. Furthermore, just to quote one thinker here, human life is mounted upon a subhuman pedestal and must shift for itself alone the heart of a silent and mindless universe. He's talking here from a Um, non-theistic perspective, human life is mounted upon a subhuman pedestal, so the transition of species over time until you get to Homo sapiens and you get to humans in this evolutionary kind of uh, process of the worldview. But what does that leave us with? It leaves us with a silent and mindless universe because there is no divine mind behind it all who's giving us meaning and who had some type of uh, end goal in mind of significance, and of value. Which is fascinating because then not all things are made right in this life. There are two I should to say this life rather than his life. Um, what we're getting at there is lots of times people get away with amazingly bad things in this lifetime. Uh, robbers who perhaps live a, a high life, as it were, on wealth like a dictator, takes over a country and lives a very high life, and no one has brought them to justice, and then they die. Like, well, what was the justice in that? Because they never faced um, the results, the consequences of their criminal activity. But if you don't have an afterlife, there is no way to right the wrongs that happened in this life because there's nothing that happens after the grave, And Ecclesiastes actually laments this issue when it's talking under the sun. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 19, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. So Ecclesiastes is taking the perspective of one under the sun, an earthly level, Without God's perspective, it's acknowledging that humans and beasts are just the same. In that perspective, we would simply die and go to the grave and rot away, and that's it, and all is vanity. So, we do need immortality. We need to have an afterlife to have significance, meaning, and value. However, immortality alone, just by itself, so bare immortality does not guarantee significance, meaning, purpose, and value. Well, one question to ask, kind of backing up and then going forward is, what do we mean by immortality? So I I put some options here of uh, worldviews and what some have claimed is ways that we live on beyond our death. There is the memorial view, that is, we live on in the hearts and minds of others. So we die, we pass away, but we live on as others remember us. And I've asked this type of question in other contexts. It would be interesting if we had time to kind of go around the room. But you know, how many people, often working with college students and grad students, but how many people know the first name and the occupation of a grandparent? And almost everyone raises their hands, right? So they remember that, first name, occupation, of a grandparent. You take it one step backward generation, like a great-grandparent. How many of you know the name and occupation of a great-grandparent? Pretty soon, hands start going down. A great-great-grandparent. A great-great-great-great-grandparent. You keep on going backward, and pretty soon, everyone in the room has their hands down. That is, that at some point, they don't remember the name and occupation of an ancestor that they had. Now, although this can sound... Uh, somewhat consoling that we live on in the hearts and minds and memories of others, in the end, if that's the only form of, quote, afterlife that we have, in those classrooms, all of their ancestors have died away, as it were, because they're not remembered anymore. And if that's all they have is memory, then they have ceased to exist in that type of form because people don't remember them anymore. I I know this sounds rather disconcerting, but this is what, of course, we're all heading toward is that, do we really expect, I realize it's different now, the digital world and we may have artifacts up on the web for a very long time, perhaps, uh, if the Lord cherries about kind of the effects of our lives in the digital world, perhaps, uh, on the internet, et cetera. So things could be changing in that regard. But in a a sense of purely in the minds and hearts of others, um, we do pass away. A second approach is the cultural immortality approach. And this says that we live on through cultural artifacts, So we write a great book, and so in that great book, people remember that forever, and they'll be reading our classic work five generations from now, or we write an amazing musical composition, and so just like Bach or Haydn or something, people will be playing that piece of music generations from now. We will live on through our great um, artifacts or an architectural wonder, such as a building or some other facet that we have created. Now, a problem with this, speaking logically, is that this is rather elitist, first of all. I mean, the vast majority of us will not be writing a book that people will be reading generations from now. We will not be writing, a composing a piece of music or building a building that will be standing there forever that people will remember. So it's rather elitist. Everyone else will simply pass away under cultural immortality view. But also, you think of the artifacts themselves, that is, especially buildings and architecture. It's eventually will decay and perhaps be torn down, et cetera. It's not really everlasting immortality. Genetic immortality says that we live on in the DNA of our descendants, so we pass on our DNA and we live on in that, and this brings up all kinds of questions related to the other ones we haven't even addressed yet, but will continue, such as, is that really personal existence when you're living on in chemical form in the DNA of your descendants, but it also brings up questions of those who are infertile, for example. Do they simply have no afterlife because they don't have descendants, and what would happen in their cases? And then cosmic immortality. So you can think about living on, you know, as some kids' uh, films we even talk about, in the circle of life. And we continue to live on as we decay, but then we're passed on, and we kind of move from the grave. Our substance goes up to the apple tree or something, and then some beast eats the apple, and we kind of move from the apple to the beast, and we become a part of the cosmos, and we live on through all of that. But again, is that we're using the word we live on or I live on, but is that really what's happening? Is there a person who's living on through DNA or through this cosmic circle of cosmic immortality? Is there any personal afterlife to those views? And of course, the Christian worldview proclaims a personal afterlife in which death is not the end, but we continue to exist as the persons that God has created us, and we have the intermediate state and eventually a resurrection in which our glorified body will be attached to our spiritual selves. So without God, life has no ultimate value. First of all, significance and value, mere duration of existence does not guarantee significance for one could simply experience eternal insignificance. So while immortality is important, of itself, bare immortality doesn't answer all the questions. So let's kind of have a little thought game here. Let's say that, you have to work with me on this one, because it's not something that works by science, of course, but that you are stranded on this uh, chunk of rock, like a meteorite, floating in space, and um, you won't ever die. So you're just kind of floating out there on a piece of rock, three feet by three feet, forever. And so you'll live forever. But I mean, would you find that to be enjoyable? Would you find significance? And would you find meaning in the fact, I'm existing forever, in fact, if there were, like, uh, two vials there on that meteorite rock, and one you could drink, let's say it's like this green um, this green cup, and you could live forever on that rock, or a red cup, and you'd actually die by drinking the red cup, and you just pass away on the three-foot-by-three-foot meteorite rock, wouldn't you in some ways be tempted just to kind of, like, I'm not going to live on this three foot by three foot rock forever, no one to relate to, no personal relationship existence with anyone outside of my little piece of property there. And I'm just using this as a thought game to show that in and of itself, immortality doesn't answer all the questions. It's important, but without God and without ultimate personal relationships with him and with others, it doesn't answer all the questions. Also, it doesn't answer the question of purpose and meaning. As uh, Dostoevsky is attributed to saying, actually, the quotes, um, not quite how we usually quote it in his book, but a paraphrase that's often quoted is, if there is no immortality, if there is no God, then all things are permitted. And the context here kind of brings us back to that dictator scenario, someone who's so powerful, they're above the law, and they die in wealth, they die in fame, they die in power. There's no justice ever meted out. But if we were that powerful, and there's no life after death, then why not live that way? If there is no immortality, and if there is no God, a justice giver, to give out justice after death, then all things are permitted. I do not have the power to give value and purpose to all facets of my life, as many key facets are beyond my control. Remember i had thrown out the name of the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre earlier, and he talked about creating meaning for ourselves, but he did acknowledge that there are facets of our lives that we have no control over, that greatly affect who we are today. He called these facticities. So, what would be a facticity—something that's true in your life that you did not choose, but really affected who you are today? Like, what's an example of that? Place of birth. Place of birth. So, I would—I did not choose to be born in Des Moines, Iowa. I didn't like have a catalog. And like, I'm going to choose where to be born, right? I had no power with that. <laughs> Parents is a key one. Parents influence us in amazing ways. In the growing up years in particular, and the way that we were raised influences who we are, but we had no power over that. Time of birth as well, like what era you were born in, the historical context in which you were born. There are facets of our birth health that we had no power over. Um, It could include, for example, um, even uh, birth disabilities, for example. We didn't choose probably to be born into a specific linguistic structure, a specific language structure. I was born into an English-speaking context. I didn't choose that. So we have all these um, siblings. We didn't choose probably our elementary school teachers for many of us. You know, our parents didn't sit down and say, okay, here's a catalog. Choose which teachers you want to be with. They probably made those decisions for us early on, right? So I mean, just sticking with the issue of parents as an example, we don't go shopping for parents. Um, and I realize there could be some exceptions in cases of some divorce cases and older teens get to have some say in what happens, et cetera. But with with a, the issue of a birth and a parent, we don't choose that, but it really affects who we are. If you're a subjectivist and you have to create meaning and significance, what we're arguing here is you'd have to admit there are pockets of your life you cannot have the power of creation over, of making that significant or Uh, value or meaning or purpose because that's not really your choice at all, which is the role of subjectivism, that we choose to make meaning. There must be a comprehensive sovereign value giver for there to be comprehensive meaning to my life. Even as adults, there are things that happen to us that we have no control over. Maybe an accident, for example, that greatly affect our lives. And we don't have the power, the authority, to give that significance, that event in our life. What we need is a sovereign being. If all of life is to have significance, we need to have a sovereign being who is sovereign over all of life to give us significance. And this is also found in the book of Ecclesiastes. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And so once again, left without immortality and without God, It's all vanity of vanities. If you think then in terms of the infinite God and humans as his creation, we have the infinite personal God. In this case, the infinite God. You have a large chasm between him and us as humans. He's infinite. We are finite. We're part of the created realm. Animals, plants, minerals. But in the case of personalness, of a personal being, you make that list. You have the personal God and humans made in his image. We have the personal God, humans on that side of the chasm, because we also are personal beings. Then the chasm, animals, plants, and minerals. It's not because we are amazing in of ourselves. It's because God has gifted us this way, being made in the image of God. Or as um, Pascal said, Blaise Pascal, that the irony is that we are miserable in a fallen world, in a finite fallen world of sinners. But what adds to our misery is we're able to think about it and to rationalize about it and to theorize about it, unlike a rock or an animal. We actually recognize more fully uh, the miserableness of despair that we are in this world. And so um, we are a person. We're thinking uh, beings with will and emotion and with thought. In fact, Matthew 6, 25-26, and 10, 29-31, and Luke 14, 1-6, talk about the value of humans. I won't take time to read Matthew 6, but that famously talks about God who watches over the sparrows. Are you not worth much more than they are? And as well as lilies of the field, the plants. And then Matthew chapter 10, and verses 29-31 argues very similarly uh, from the standpoint of sparrows as animals and how humans are worth more than they are. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear you not, therefore, you have more value than many sparrows. And then Luke 14, 1 through 6, it, it actually takes a tactic of like what a rabbi would do. A rabbi would take a tactic of arguing from the lesser to the greater. And Christ is accused of working on the Sabbath because he actually healed a human being on the Sabbath. And then he kind of flips this argument on the rabbis, though, when he says, or the Jewish religious leaders, he says, but the law itself allows you to rescue a domesticated animal out of a pit, if it falls in the pit, on the Sabbath day. And if that's allowed, arguing from the lesser to the greater, how much more would God allow healing a human being on the Sabbath So it's implicitly there that the humans are worth more than the animals. In terms of facets of meaning, what do we as humans uh, need to have a sense of meaning in life? Well, first of all, a sense of identity. In a biblical worldview, we're made in God's image, and our identity is in Christ. That is redemption. Thinking of a handy-dandy Christian worldview for a moment, we have creation, we have fall, we have redemption, so the incarnation of Christ and his death for our sins and resurrection Uh, We have community, how God has worked in community, such as Israel, uh, now the church, but also family, government. And then we have the eschaton, the future, so the final consummation. And various facets of this Christian worldview, which are founded upon ultimately theism at the wrist. There is a God and revelation. He has revealed himself. Or as Francis Schaeffer said, he is there, he's not silent. Remind us of our identity in Christ. Of course, identity language is big in our culture today. As believers, our identity is we're made in the image of God and we are in Christ if we are believers. Our sense of love, everyone's looking to be loved, uh, to be beloved to someone. In a biblical worldview, we are loved by a gracious and self-giving God and Savior and incarnation. God loved us and gave himself for us. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves us out of that much grace. We also need a sense of accomplishment to have meaning in life. In the Christian worldview, it reminds us that we serve others through vocation. Uh, even uh, our various jobs, we are service to other people. And then in the life of the church, in particular in our ministries, we build the body of Christ and we do so to the glory of God. That's the community part of our Christian worldview. So in summary... Here this morning, Jesus says in John 10.10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he stresses having life in the sense of eternal life. And in this verse, he talks about it being an abundant life that we would live abundantly. And in the Gospel of John, like in chapter 15 with a vine and the branches, we get the sense that we can enjoy facets of that abundance even here and now. It's not simply about the extent of life, although it includes that, everlasting life, survive the grave, but also actually is a description of the fullness of life in various ways as well, that we could live in a fullness of life. for as Galatians 2.20 says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So through union with Christ and faith in him, he's living himself out through us, through his spirit. So we can thank the Lord that we do not live a life of absurdity, a life of vanity of vanities. And we can live out this abundant life before others in our apologetic endeavor and in our witnessing opportunities. It looks like I saved one minute on this round. I'm only four minutes over instead of five, so if we keep on hacking away throughout the day, we'll get back on track. But I thank you for your attention. Again, if you have any questions during lunch, I would love to talk to you, but let's look to the Lord in prayer uh, for this session. Father, we do thank you for life itself in your son, Jesus Christ, that you raised him from the dead, that he gave himself, but he also... um, took back his life and conquered death, and we thank you for life in him. We pray that that might be evident to others as we have a spirit transformed and spirit-empowered life and that we might be able to make a defense, a reason for the hope that is in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.